Very well. Um, we have had a full and a very energetic service. I want to thank you for your singing, or maybe thank Paddy and Glennis for, uh, for choosing such wonderful songs to sing. We need to talk about our Bible reading, the book of John, chapter 1. Uh, we've done the first part of John, and then we did a part of Matthew, and now we are back to the Gospel of John, and we need to continue the story. But before we get there, just take a moment to ask yourself the following question. Why are you here this morning? Are you here because of habit? Are you here because, as the children's song has reminded us, you think going to church might get you to heaven? Are you here because you like the people and the morning tea afterwards? You, you, you could probably answer yes to all those questions, and there would still be another reason why you are probably here. Perhaps you are here because you want answers. Maybe you want to know what this faith thing is all about. Or maybe you want to know what the answer to the question of life is. Maybe you'll go one step further. Maybe you'll say, well, I don't want answers. I want guarantees. I want you to tell me that the Lord says if I come to church more Sundays than not over the, the span of my life, I'll get into heaven. Maybe you want the kind of guarantees you get when you buy stuff off Amazon, five-year guarantees or two-year guarantees, that if you do A, B, and C, you'll receive X, Y, and Z. And if the thing breaks, send it back. You'll get your money back. Now, you won't get either of those today. The Word of God does two things to us. It informs us, and it transforms us. And we are focused on the transformation. But to get there, we have to go through the information. So, you heard the scripture that Ted read for us. John the Baptist is doing his thing preaching the coming kingdom of God, baptizing people in repentance. We talked about this last week. You don't need to repeat it this week. And then he says, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not who has taken away, not who will take away, who takes it away in the present moment now and forevermore. And then John has an explanation of why he says that. We talked about that a bit last week as well, where he says, I may have started my ministry before him, but he has been here before me. He surpasses me. He is the one that I referenced when I said, after me will come one who is before me, who is greater than I, and I testify he is the Son of God. And then we read the next day, John was doing his business again, and his disciples, his followers were with him. And again he sees Jesus, and again he says, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples decide, well, if our teacher thinks that is the Lamb of God, we should follow him. And so they start following Jesus. 
And it's actually told in quite a funny way. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Well, teacher, we want to know where you live. We want to see where you're staying. What they're probably saying is, teacher, we want to spend time with you. We want to get to know you. And Jesus says, well, come along and you'll see. And the next thing we read is that these men became very convicted about the identity of Jesus. Was it Andrew called his brother? Simon said, we have found the Messiah. And when Jesus sees Simon, he says, you will be called Peter, Cephas, which means rock. And of course, we know how the story ends. Peter becomes the rock on which Jesus builds his church. No answers in the story. It's not the kind of story that you read and go away from with uh, 10 habits to live your life by. It's not the kind of story you read thinking, oh, well, obviously the answer is to find the place where Jesus is staying. That's what the piece of scripture is about. It does something else to us. It invites us into the story of the of John the Evangelist, the story of John the Baptist, the story of Jesus of Nazareth himself, and it asks us to be transformed by the story. And obviously, this is a very well-known piece of Scripture, and the, the image of Jesus as the Lamb of God is very well-known and very important for the identity of the church. Now, the problem is, I think, when we think of a lamb, this is the image that we like to think about. Isn't that right? Fluffy and cute. And if you go home and you go on YouTube and you say funny lamb videos, you'll spend the whole afternoon laughing the way that small animals get up to very funny things. But please keep in mind, this is not the lamb we're talking about. We're talking about a very different picture. Now, I need to correct myself. Last week, I prematurely said that the Lamb of God, the reference that John makes, is to Jesus being the Lamb that is sacrificed as a sacrifice for sin, as a sacrifice of repentance in the Old Testament. But I realized this week that is not correct. Lambs were sacrificed, but never as penitence, never as repentance for sin. For that, you would use all sorts of other animals and other rituals and other liturgies. But lambs were offered, and of course, we know the most famous uh, instance of where lambs are used is in the celebration of Passover. And we'll get to Exodus 12, where that is uh, described in a bit. But before we get there, Janita and I spoke in the week about the use of the disco ball, and I was incredibly excited, and I'm so glad she did use it, because you saw that disco ball. It wasn't very high, but that doesn't matter. It's a globe with, oh, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small square mirrors pasted on the outside. And it doesn't even have to, have to be turning 
and you don't even need a strong, sharp, clear light shining on it, and you don't need the place to be dark, from where you're sitting, you can see a reflection of the light coming in of every single different square in a very different way. Now, in a certain sense, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a disco ball reflecting God's image and God's light in a hundred thousand different ways for us to understand. And in a sense, that's what John the evangelist, the guy who wrote the book, is doing. And in a sense, that's also what John the Baptist is doing when he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. We don't know what he means. We don't know whether he's referring to the story in Exodus whether he's just, uh, referring to some other kind of sacrifice mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't know whether he's referring to the story in Revelation. The best guess we have is he's giving us an image that encompasses the story of the entire Bible. And so I hope you like reading your Bibles because we're going to do a bit of reading. I think it's the next one. Oh, we'll get to that picture in a second as well. Um, like we mentioned, in Exodus 12 we find probably the best-known example of a lamb being used in sacrifice, in ritual in the Old Testament. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males, and this is important, without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And we know the rest of the story. And on the night of Passover, the angel of death will pass over the houses that have the blood of the lamb on the door frames. And you see the implication when talking about Christ as the Lamb of God. The blood of Christ is our insurance that the penalty of death and sin will pass us over. That's the one thing that John could have meant when he said, look, the Lamb of God. Here's the next one. Isaiah 53 he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished." He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is perhaps lesser known piece of scripture referring to the lamb, the lamb led to slaughter in Isaiah, but a piece that was very important in the time that John the Baptist was operating. 
Isaiah had written this piece of prophecy. Now again, remember, we said last week, prophets don't predict the future. Prophets just know what to say about the present. John the Baptist refers to this piece of scripture when he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. Because John had been given by the revelation of the Spirit the knowledge that Christ Jesus will be led like a lamb to the slaughter for our sins. The servants of the Lord punished for the wickedness of mankind so that we will not be punished. Very well. So, John the Baptist could have meant that as well. And then there's one more uh, reference. And this one is from the book of Revelation. Now you might say, oh, well, Revelation was written sometime after the ministry of Jesus. Surely John the Baptist wasn't referring to what happened to Jesus, but was written in the future. But remember, John the Evangelist wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John and the book of Revelation. And so when we read the Gospel of John, we must read Revelation as well to get the whole picture. And this is what John the Evangelist says in chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And now you'll say, but Fritz, there's nothing about a lamb in that piece of scripture. All I see is a lion. The very next verse, I apologize, the writing came out smaller than I imagined. The very next verse, remember the elder just said to John, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is victorious. And John turns around. And then I saw a lamb. Not the fluffy one in the first picture. Looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased, purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. 
Well, there we have it. Three different pieces of scripture spanning the entire story of the Bible, all relevant to the words of John when he saw Jesus walking and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God. Not the mighty warrior, not the clever professor, not the rich rabbi, but the lamb. And incidentally, it's very much like the revelation of God. In one instance, to refer to Jesus as the lion of Judah, and in the very next instance to say, but actually the lion is a lamb. A lamb who was slain. When we talk about these pieces of scripture, and when we talk about the story that we know follows that which John says in these opening verses of his gospel, we need to always remember that a lamb and the lamb of God in the context of both the Old and the New Testament is not a fluffy creature that you raise by hand as a pet in the house, but always a lamb who is slain, a lamb whose blood is spilt for our sins. In the Old Testament, something very important happens when people wish to make an agreement with one another. If myself and any one of you decide, well, we want to go into a partnership, We'd like to buy a piece of land, or you would like to have my vehicle, but I would like to have your goat, or however it may be. We would meet and discuss all the different uh, aspects of what the trade or what the agreement might mean. And when we have come to an agreement, we wouldn't shake hands and that would be that. We wouldn't draw up a, draw up a big contract and sign our names at the bottom, we would take a dove or some other animal. This story is recorded in Genesis, I think, 16, 17, when Abraham makes a covenant with the Lord as well. And we would take the dove and we would split it in half. The blood would spill. And we would take the two split pieces of the dove, and it's probably good that it's uh, uh, still school holidays because this is quite a, a, <laughs> a rough story and place them slightly apart, and then you and I would walk between these split pieces of the animal, and that would be our agreement with each other. And we call that a covenant. And in the Old Testament, when God makes a covenant with the people of Israel, blood is spilt. This is the, part of the reasoning behind the circumcision, which is the, the big covenant of the Old Testament. In circumcision, blood is spilt. And this gives us a different perspective on what John the Baptist is saying when he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God, one whose blood will be spilt so that the covenant may be fulfilled, so that the great covenant may be made.
Our God makes covenants. But we like to make contracts. Isn't that right? We like to draw up contracts in which we say, I will do A, B, and C if you do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I am no longer obligated to do A, B, or C. We like to go into negotiations thinking, what's in it for me? How can I change the agreement so that it suits my purpose and my goal? And grace is the revelation, the epiphany, that God doesn't make contracts. He makes covenants. God doesn't give you guarantees. He gives you promises. This is grace. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, and also in all of our lives, God doesn't give you a set of guarantees and a set of conditions, and if you keep to the conditions, then the guarantee is valid. God gives you a promise which you cannot break. And to make sure that you cannot break it, He gave His Son, the Lamb, without defect for your sins. Now, this is where we go from the Word of God informing us to the Word of God transforming us. Because this is where we have to say to each other, we come to church and we read our Bibles and we sing praises to God. Ooh, I see only three of them showed up. Guys behind the PowerPoint, if you make all the text in that picture in a white font, it'll all show up. There should be three more words. That aren't, uh, that, that are still in black font. My apologies for that. We'll start with the bottom one. We want answers. And this is true of the story that we read as well. Jesus is walking along and the disciples say, or Jesus says to the disciples, what do you want? And they say, well, we want to see where you're staying. We want to spend time with you. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I stay above the church, the Uniting Church in Redcliffe, 1 Richen Street. Find me there. He doesn't give them an answer. What does he do? He says, come with me and you will see. We want the Lord to give us answers. Lord, why did my business venture fail? Why is my family member sick? Why do I feel like no matter how hard I try, I can't let go of these dirty old sins in my life? And then we want answers. And you know what God says? Come with me and you will see. There's no answers. It's only the greatest invitation. There's no information. There's the invitation to be transformed. There where you can see the word guarantees. We've spoken about this. We don't get guarantees. It's supposed to be here. 
we get the promise of God. This is why John the Baptist says, look, there is the Lamb of God. By saying that, he is saying to all of us through all the ages that we don't need to do it ourselves. We don't need to work and sweat and toil to be good enough for God. The promise of Christ is that we are already good enough for God through His grace and through His righteousness. We want contracts. God gives us a covenant. This is what the Lamb has done for each and every one of us. And so when we pray, we say to the Lord, Lord, if you give me this, if you take away my sin, if you help me to stop doing that thing I hate doing, then I will do something for you. Then I will come to church more. Or I'll talk about you at work. Or I'll invite people to church. Or I'll do a bit more charity. We want the contract. We might do it the other way around. We might say, Lord, what if for the, 40, for the following 40 days I don't drink coffee? What if I give that up for Lent? Lent is coming up in a few weeks. Then, will you give me the faith I've always wanted? You see, we like the contract. And again, God will say to us, I give you the covenant. I give you a promise that can't be broken. I give you a warranty that can't be voided. I give you an invitation that can't be revoked. Let go of your answers and your guarantees and your contracts and follow me. Do what all the disciples did and follow me. Come with me and see. This isn't in the Gospel of John, but it's amazing that the first time Jesus speaks to the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, he says to the brothers fishing by the sea, come with me, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He doesn't ask them whether they can speak three languages. He doesn't ask them whether they know what it means to be fishers of men. He doesn't ask them if they passed uh, uh, their final year of high school. It doesn't matter. Because he gives the promise. He gives the covenant. Maybe you came here looking for answers. But I hope you heard the invitation of God. Maybe you came here wanting that final guarantee. But I hope you heard the promise of God. Maybe you came here thinking, today I'll stick to the contract. And I hope you heard that you have the covenant sealed by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Let's close our eyes and pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive us when we take your 
incredible message of grace and love and unconditional acceptance and we turn it into a contract. Forgive us that for 2,000 years we have told each other the lie that we need to do something in order to gain your favor. Forgive us that we do this even now. That we believe ourselves too wicked or too lazy or too weak or too cowardly to deserve your grace. Victorious, triumphant Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world here now in this moment as in every moment. Here are prayers of confession. Transform our thinking and our doing and our believing. Let us hear your invitation and not the world's answers. Let us hear your invitation and follow in your footsteps, whatever that might mean to every single one of us. We have heard your invitation, Lord, and now we open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes and our hands to receive you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.